back again for another week of Securiosity. But first, you've heard about it. Have you registered yet? DC Cyber Week, presented by CyberScoop, is the nation's largest cybersecurity festival. This citywide festival drives thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to Washington, D.C. for one week to exchange best practices, collaborate, and find ways to achieve common goals. Community events are at the heart and soul of DC Cyber Week, and this is your chance to meet top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Sign up for as many events as you can and get the most out of this year's festival. For more information, check out dccyberweek.com. Let's go! Welcome to Securiosity for July 19th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. This week, Microsoft is sending out early warnings about the 2020 election, Blue Keep patching is a mixed bag, and a company wants to use diamonds to protect the supply chain. We'll tell you more. In our interview, we talk with Casey Alice from BugCrowd on how his company has meshed the nature of pen testing with bug bounty programs to form what's being thought of as more crowdsourced security. But first, let's get into the news. Microsoft has notified 10,000 customers in the past week that they've been hit with nation-state cyber attacks, some successful from Iran, North Korea, and Russia. Some of the attacks observed appeared to be related to U.S. politics and the democratic process, but many were not, according to Microsoft. Last year, there were nearly 800 cyber attacks from nation-states against political organizations such as American think tanks and NGOs that work with candidates or political parties. This could be a precursor to direct attacks on campaigns and election systems themselves, wrote Tom Burt, corporate VP of customer security. Greg, is this a sneak peek of the future? Well, I think it's a little bit of the norm almost because we can talk about 2016 all we want and what happened there. But I mean, even going back to, well, you know, whenever campaigns started using the internet, there was going to be intelligence services sort of prying into those campaigns wherever they could in order to gain intelligence. It's I don't think that you're like that's just going to fall off the face of the planet due to the heightened attention in 2020. I mean, these countries are going to try to pry in to get intelligence, whether we see, you know, sort of this weaponized disinformation. I think you're going to see attempts on it. So it's good to talk about it in that way, because we all know the cyber attacks generally are a precursor to disinformation, you know, hitting the masses. But I don't necessarily think it, it's going to be anything different. It, just because this, this is what Russia, this is what China, this is what North Korea, this is what Iran do. And this is what other countries do as well. Like, And we do it to other countries that are having their own elections. We pry for intelligence. This is, you know, it, it's going to be intelligence gathering. As long as you have democracies that are going through the electoral process, uh, you're going to have other countries that are going to try to find their own way in and get the information that they need to get. So, but this was only 800 that were sort of politically bent. What about the other attacks? I think that, well, I, I think it's because there were customers that you're seeing just it's sort of a prey and spray right now. Right. Um, where they're just going after these people, just kind of setting up. Uh, for 2020. So it's just basically kind of knocking on doors almost. So oh, so you're saying those 10,000 customers might have just been part of the 800 
Right. Yeah. Attempts. Yeah. They well, there might have been just uh, an attempt, and an attempt might have even gone so far or so little as to only be like a scan. Like we noticed this IP address, which we've attached to um, APT groups from these countries, scanned your networks looking for ways in. I mean, it, it all get it all depends on what. Microsoft is categorizing as an attack. And a lot of times, a lot of these companies categorize a scan as an attack when really all it is is just a scan, just to see where there are vulnerabilities. Now, uh, 800 cyber attacks, I don't think there was any real evidence that the majority of them were successful. Uh, Again, it might just be a, a phishing email considered a cyber attack and you get that email and nobody clicked on it and you're fine i think this report really serves as just a warning almost to say hey we've been telling you now for years and if you haven't learned your lesson from 2016 you you need to gear up because they're they're going to come so a wild story in Bulgaria this week. Bulgarian authorities arrested a 20-year-old government contractor in connection with a hack on the country's national tax agency that involved information about roughly 5 million adults. Prosecutors described the suspect only as KB, though through Bulgarian media, it was quickly identified the suspect was Christian Boykov, a computer specialist that worked for the government. Uh, the Sofia, which is the capital of Bulgaria, the city's prosecutor office described the hacking suspect as a cybersecurity expert who is involved in testing and auditing information systems. Uh, Boykov has been conducting cybersecurity training for the GDOC, which is a Bulgarian government agency. His Facebook page lists him as an employer of the TAD Group, which is a security firm in Bulgaria that was working with the government gen. Hell of a way to go out, go working for the contractors and then leaking an entire country's uh, tax information. I mean, he must have had a really rough day at work the day before he did this. Yeah, you know, it's funny. He put out a note that I believe was picked up by Bulgarian media that was like, I'm having a lot of problems at home. I, I needed to do this because I needed money. And it was clear that the this was the work of a 20-year-old because it was not really thought through at all. Who paid him? Uh, I don't think anybody paid him. I just think he was arrested and, and that was that. He was asking for uh, money after he dumped everything. I think oh, this was like – Yeah, yeah. He was asking for money oh. well, to avoid doing it again because I think that he took all of it and was dumping – the Sessions. tax information oh, in increments wow. and going, okay, here's $2 million. I'm going to dump another $6 million if you don't give me you know, the, the equivalent of, of $10 million in whatever Bulgaria's currency is. So um, a hostage, a, a more old school hostage situation. Normally it's just ransomware. Um, so um, you, you can see why this failed. This is exactly why... Uh, crooks have turned to ransomware because they don't need to identify themselves and and put out ransom notes to to the media. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's now made a a name for himself. Um, But if you're going to do something, go all the way and just leak it all. Right. Uh, Yeah. Or just just don't do it and you can avoid Bulgarian (laughs) jail. Also an option. Well, there's that. So progress report on patching for the potent BlueKeep Windows vulnerability is a mixed bag. The good news, according to data from BitSight, 
is that as of July 2nd, there has been a 17% reduction in internet-facing systems that are exposed to the vulnerability. The bad news? There's still more than 800,000 operating systems online that haven't remediated BlueKeep. Some industries have done more patching than others. Electric and water utilities are a notable lag. Since the end of May, less than 10% of utility organizations with internet-exposed machines vulnerable to BlueKeep had remedi- remediated that flaw, according to surveys. Greg, what's your reaction to these numbers? I know what mine is. Yeah, uh, it's not great, but it's not terrible. It's clear that it's not being ignored, which is a good thing. And the 10% for the utilities is really, really worrisome because, look, the whole danger in BlueKeep is that it's wormable. So the malware can move to infect systems pretty much on its own. Um, And then, you know, just by dropping this in a system, it doesn't affect one system. One system can blossom into nine or 10 or 20 or however big your network is. And then your entire system is owned. God forbid that that is a a water plant or a manufacturing plant or some other uh, utility that people depend on because now you're talking about loss of life. Um, Well, and that's critical infrastructure that should be sort of first to get patches and and be protected. Right. Um, I mean, that can do a lot of a lot of damage. For instance, the water utility, we've talked about this before Um, in Ashburn, Virginia, you take that down, potentially you're taking all the, all the, the, cloud. the cloud down, right? right? I mean, it's just, and then we're taking everything down. I mean, it's a it's a big problem. 10% right. is not good enough. Right. Uh, the, the scan from BitSight, I mean, really interesting. All, all of these are public-facing systems. So it's that's bad in its own right. Right. Uh, in that if BitSight can find it, that means some attackers can still find it. And uh, it needs to be patched. It, it really does need to be patched. We, we talked about it a couple weeks ago where... We actually had some stories from people, uh, some companies that have been pushing these patches out, and they just ran them out the door because that's how dangerous this is. Normally, you're not supposed to ram patches out the door, but when things are um, as dangerous as this, you, you got to put it out there. Absolutely. So if you're uh, out there listening and you know your system is could be considered in one of these 800,000 operating systems that are one online and two still vulnerable to BlueKeep, at this point, you're, you're, you're really running the risk that you're going to get hit pretty I hard. I wonder if Microsoft will take a page from Apple and just force down a patch onto all of their systems. And Apple last week do something around Zoom. Right, but I think that had to do more with like just the consumer side of things. Like right. if your consumer network was attached to, uh, or if your, your computer is attached to, uh, you know, the Apple uh, uh, OS, and that's fine. A- Apple has the ability to do that. I don't think that Microsoft can necessarily start going into different enterprises that are built upon Windows. If they can do that, then then that's <laughs> wow. That that would be something. That would that that would uh, that would be enough content. We might do a podcast just dedicated to and the ramifications. And yet, I kind of want that. them to do it based on ten percent of utilities being right fixed. So business email compromise scams, the scams in which crooks impersonate corporate executives to request money transfers, cost organizations an average of $301 million every month last year, according to a report by the U.S. Department of Treasury. The unit that did the study, the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, said it received roughly 14,000 suspicious activity reports related to business email compromise scams last year, compared to about 6,000 in 2016. 
The findings add more evidence to the notion that despite more corporate training, stronger anti-phishing and anti-spoofing measures, and more attention on security overall, thieves from around the world are continuing to siphon dollars from U.S. businesses of all sizes. Jen, you've talked to plenty of executives. How often do you find this to come up and how often do you hear that this is a problem? I mean, it comes up a lot. Um, I'm just just talking to, um, to friends um, that work at other companies, I've had had a lot of them actually being asked to transfer money. In fact, um, even in my company, um, the CFO, the former CFO of my company, got an email um, supposedly from the CEO of my company asked her to transfer a significant amount of money. Clearly, you know, offices next door they knew it wasn't legit and it didn't happen. But I hear that story over and over again. Anything from money transfers to buy a bunch of gift cards. Um, so it's interesting, and I actually got a phone call um, two days ago um, from somebody asking to speak to me, saying that um, Tom, I work for, for okay. a gentleman named Tom, um, asked him to call me um, because money needed to be transferred. And I, what's so Tom's last name? So they updated phone calls. So now. it was a phone okay. call. I got a phone call about it, and I was like, "Well, what's Tom's last name?" Um, and they said something like Springer, and I was like, "Oh, okay." And it was clearly a call center. I mean, right. there was okay. no like, you know. So right, no, no official. No, like, yeah, right. it just wasn't, it wasn't like good enough that I would actually pay any attention right. to it. But just interesting, um, it seems to be a, a bigger and bigger problem and we have to just ignore and ask more questions. I'm really surprised that they would even bother making a phone call because the, the reason this is stuck to email is it's so easy. I mean, you can spoof an email. You, you can't Absolutely. really spoof yeah. a phone call, especially when you can hear in the background there's a call center going on and it's just hammering you away at some database but you continue to make the calls because obviously somebody's following for yeah it. right when u.s cyber command simulated a cyber attack against a seaport last month military personnel hunted for adversaries who appeared to be using malware against a critical trade hub the exercise which included 650 participants from the five eyes and throughout the u.s government split personnel to 20 offensive and defensive teams Members from the U.S. Coast Guard also did an exercise to run through how they would respond to a real cyber attack on a port. Rear Admiral John Magyar, Cyber Command's Director of Exercises and Training, told reporters in a briefing, Magyar said that this cyber flag worked on focusing its cyber protection teams on hunting for adversaries instead of focusing only on cybersecurity and mission protection. Greg, what did we in Cyber Command really learn here? That the ports, just like anything else, are huge, huge targets and they can be hit pretty hard just by your commodity open source malware. Um, the uh, the exercise uh, imitated attack that blocked a seaport's ability to move cargo and the simulation looked more at like the real-time aspects yeah. of it. Um, I think this took place in Virginia, like the Hampton Roads, Norfolk area, which I'm sure I know you're familiar with. And you know how big of a port Mm -hmm. uh, that is to the country when it comes to shipping. So um, it was really, really interesting to see how many people were involved. You hit uh, a little bit of it, but more than 650 people took part in the exercise. We're talking about Cyber Command's National Mission Force. I know Marine Corps was there. There were National Guard um, cyber warriors, I I think that's what they're called, um, from Georgia, Nebraska, Texas, Pennsylvania. And I think that there were also people there from DHS, the Department of Energy, 
uh, I think the U.S. Postal Service was even brought Makes in sense. as yeah. well. So um, they were split into 20 offensive and defensive teams, and then the goal was for red teamers to attack and block a port from moving cargo. And I, I think that they actually defended against it. I mean, whether or not they defended against it, I mean, it's just an exercise. Nobody wins. Right. So yeah. um, it's just an exercise in figuring out what would happen. But, I, I mean, I think this was done with, like, just off-the-shelf commodity malware that you and I, with some quick searching, could download and try to weaponize. So it shows how easy it is to weaponize something and take down just tens and hundreds of millions of dollars in economic power with uh, a few keystrokes. I mean, this reminds me of what happened with NotPetya. Uh, NotPetya attack took down Maersk, and Maersk lost millions of dollars in damages, had to, I think, stand up like 4,000 new servers in the process after that. I mean... It's this is really really important to figure out ahead of time how something like this looks. So if you ever see something like that actually happening, you know how to defeat it without any issue. And yeah, we're not but, talking about it. I mean, we should absolutely be doing things like that for sure. So a hacking group linked with Russian intelligence has labeled code strings in a new campaign, Rocket Man and Trump Tower, Kaspersky researchers said earlier this week. It's unclear why the group known as Turla gave the code those names, but the references are obvious allusions to the current state of geopolitics. In keeping with Turla's modus operandi, the new code was built for an ongoing hacking campaign aimed at a narrow set of unnamed government organizations. A Kaspersky researcher told CyberScoop that Turla still follows a high-profile political agenda, and now developers have broadened their arsenal of tools and spreading techniques. Jen, is this a good or bad troll job by the hacking group? It's awesome. I also don't think we'd be talking about it in the news if it wasn't named Trump Tower and Rocket Man. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure it would filter up. Right. Um, Well, I I think it might have for CyberScoop's uh, issues, but I don't think that you would have seen this uh, otherwise because Turla Turla is pretty, pretty dangerous to American interests. Um, They are, have always followed that model of a narrow set of targets and then hitting them uh, pretty hard. I mean, if you go back, we've covered Tur- Turla for years, but it's it's funny now that they've gotten so brazen that oh, okay, we're we're, we're going to call out uh, some geopolitical um, enemies here in the process, and there's nothing you can do about it. So great, we're, the the code now trolls people. So that's that's the state. Of, well, Rocket Man uh, is Elton John, right? Well, yeah, but, but I it's also meant to be, yeah. yeah, but still. Yeah, I mean, no, I sure, sure. Maybe they are just Elton John fans, <laughs> and it's just an entire coincidence. Wouldn't bet on it, though. So Don Adams, a sitting member of the Virginia House of Delegates, is accused in a new lawsuit of violating federal anti-hacking laws for allegedly assessing the Facebook, banking, and other personal accounts of her former campaign manager. Adams, at one point, asked the girlfriend of Maureen Haynes, her former campaign boss, for the password to her personal Facebook profile in order to remove Haynes as administrator to Adams' official Facebook page. Haynes' complaint alleges that Adams could have revoked Haynes' access from her own administrator account and suggests that the Virginia lawmaker has an ulterior motive 
for obtaining Haynes' login credentials. Haynes later noticed her online bank account had been suspended because of suspicious activity, leading her to suspect Adams had also tried to access that information, as well as her Gmail account, according to the suit. Greg, this might win the messiest story of the week. Yeah. Um, this, if, I, I mean, I'm not surprised this ended in a lawsuit. This is just poor corporate behavior. Like, it, you could read through this story and just print it out and put it in manuals in, inside any organization, any corporate manual that says, don't do this. <laughs> just just don't do this. Don't hack your employees' information. That's a flagrant violation of the law, and, and you probably shouldn't do it. I mean, it sounds like the person who gave the password away, too, though, is, is also um, should be under some fire. Yeah, um, that's that's just not great. I, it doesn't have really anything to do with just enterprise or corporate. That's just personal. Right? Uh, why would why would you know the password of uh, like I, my spouse? I don't know any of her passwords. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, that's, which is I've normal, ever, right? Which is totally right. Normal. That's that's yeah. completely normal behavior. Um, yeah, don't don't do anything here. Like, just just read the story. Uh, and don't do any of it. Right. Terrible. So on the business side of things, uh, the big business story cybersecurity-wise earlier this week, uh, Symantec and Broadcom have reportedly suspended deal negotiations, at least for now, following disagreements around a takeover price. This marks Broadcom's second failed attempt to get a high-profile deal done in the last two years. Last March, the chipmaker had to call off a $117 billion takeover bid for Qualcomm. And then on the funding side of things, uh, one company that got a nice Series A this week, uh, Defense Storm, an Alpharetta, Georgia-based cybersecurity management platform for local banks and credit unions. The funding was $15 million for a Series A, and the funding was led by Georgia Partners. And then a company that I think I genuinely mean this has done something here, which I find to be incredibly fascinating. Dust Identity raised $10 million in a Series A funding round led by Kleiner Perkins and included strategic investments from the VC arms of Lockheed Martin and Airbus. The money will help the Massachusetts-based company refine and commercialize its novel technique of using minuscule synthetic diamond fragments to attach unique durable tracking codes to physical objects like all these high-tech components that we talk about when it comes to the motherboards and the chips that go into enterprise hardware. Uh, Jen, what do you think about this Dust Identity company? I'm a little disappointed they're not using um, real diamonds. Well, that would, uh, well, I mean, aren't the real diamonds supposed to go into all of the fancy jewelry and everything like, like that? Sure, but I mean, it would make it a little bit more interesting. Um, I don't, it, it certainly is interesting. It makes um, it makes me think of um, a company that's sort of been hanging around um, a lot of bigger cybersecurity companies I know that does synthetic um, gemstones. And I always kind of wondered what the connection was. And I wonder if they're not trying to do something similar. Yeah. Um, just because I kept wondering why I'm hearing about this company from a bunch of cybersecurity CEOs. I thought maybe they were like, oh, you're a girl. Maybe you want to talk about gemstones. But now I'm thinking there must have been a cybersecurity thing here. Um yeah, I mean, we hear we, we've talked about the the security around the supply chain. Uh, it, it's been a topic long before this podcast and uh, yeah. CyberScoop has been uh, stood up. But this is literally the first time I've seen something that looks to be very, very novel in how to go about 
protecting it because so much of what we talk about protection-wise when it comes to cybersecurity and, and looking forward is uh, AI, machine learning, blockchain, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. how do we leverage all of that? And it's all just these ephemeral ideas and nobody really has any real practical use for any of this yet. This is something that it leverages technology in a very, very interesting way that doesn't depend on any like new technologies being spun up. Um, it's very, very cool that – and to break this down a little bit more, uh, I, I believe this company takes the diamond fragments, puts them on a polymer and then basically sprays component boards and then runs a light through the minuscule components and it creates like a fingerprint that you can use yeah. to track uh, the different parts that are moving throughout the supply chain. Um that just strikes me as incredibly, incredibly novel. I would love to have them on the show. So anybody out there that uh, is listening and knows of Dust Identity, we're going to reach out. I definitely want to hear more about this. But um, what do you think of this, uh, the semantic Broadcom stuff as well? I mean, deals fall apart. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything like super interesting here other than clearly the company thinks they're have a bigger valuation than the acquirer does. Yeah, uh, I uh, see. The reason I find it interesting too is Symantec is obviously. I think I would probably put them in the top three largest cybersecurity companies out there. Sure. And yet they're looking to be acquired. I, I know that uh, Toma Bravo was also um, kicking the tires on Symantec as well, and we see all these other companies uh, that. Uh, are are either being acquired or are IPO'd. Uh, I'm really surprised that Symantec isn't following suit. They're just looking to be uh, um, acquired themselves. I mean, it's a big it's a big price tag, right? And yeah, I guess it's hard point, to look at a price tag like that and and say no, no, thank you. You know, I, that's probably as good as um, an IPO for the economics for like the investors and the founders, and you know, so it's why not take the deal and have the ability to sort of walk away instead of having, you know, a hold back period on selling your shares. Right. Right. Okay. All right. And now to our interview with Casey. Uh, Casey, longtime friend of uh, CyberScoop. Love talking to Casey. Uh, we got together uh, out at Gartner a couple weeks ago and talked about all the things surrounding crowdsourced security and pen testing and how he sees everything coming together and how that is helping uh, fill some gaps when it comes to the cybersecurity workforce. Check it out. Joining us now is founder and CTO of Bug Crowd, Casey Ellis. Casey, thanks for taking some time out of the Gartner Summit to join us today. Likewise. Um, so there has been a lot of noise around the evolution of crowdsourced security in the past couple months, and particularly around how it's moving into the pen testing realm. Now, was this something that you always saw coming from Bug Crowd, or was this a response to what the market wanted? Yeah, it's, it's actually something that I always saw coming for, for, for Bug Crowd. Um, you know, as a former pen tester myself and, and running a pen test company in Australia prior to starting Bug Crowd, the, the problem that I was thinking about at the time was, you know, how do you balance the playing field? Like there's this combination of not enough people to go around, you know, the, the increasing velocity of the creation of attack surface. Um, and just this idea that one person being expected to outsmart, you know, an undefined number of, of adversaries on a continuous basis, like the math's wrong. You, you need to find a way to, to level the playing field. 
So really what happened at that point was, um, or in tandem with those thoughts in, in my mind, was uh, Google and Facebook coming out and actually talking about their VRP. And, and the industry, I noticed, was leaning into that concept. Like, it was standalone, a cool idea that people kind of liked, but it was more than that. They actually saw this as a rational way to, to you know, create that leveling effect um, in the resourcing and the economics of how they solved the problem. So the idea for Bug Crowd has always been um, to support this, you know, net new disclosure market in the, in the form of, of VDP and public bug bounty, but then to take our learnings and the data that's generated from, from doing that to be able to use a similar model uh, in a private context to, to go after things like penetration testing and so on. So there's been some data that shows companies that use crowdsourced security as a way to solve problems um, that are low level, but when it gets to something more specialized, CISOs want more expertise. Um, how do you wrestle with that? Uh, we don't. I mean, we, we actually do a lot of, um, <clears throat> well, don't wrestle with it rather. Um, it's actually something that we've been positioning out in the market. And even you know, the, since the release of NGPT, what we've seen is a lot of customers coming to us and, and buying the product because they understand that we've got access to a talent pool that they can't necessarily you know, hire in-house, but also you know, necessarily get to through the, uh, the local consultancies and things like that. And I think that's, you know, this is why we, we did both of those things, like the disclosure model that I was talking about before, but also this crowdsource model. One actually provides the engine and the feeder for the other. So as we're running these public programs for companies like, you know, Fiat Chrysler or MasterCard or Tesla, we're collecting and attracting all of these different people with very diverse skill sets onto the platform, understanding how much we can trust them, what skills they have and how competent they are, like what the nature of the skills are. Uh, and with that information, we can actually make some pretty unique connections for you know, fairly esoteric technologies. So it's an interesting thing because I think the, the crowdsourcing uh, model is, is generally thought of as this kind of commoditized, wide, go find cross-site scripting thing, which it also is, um, but that's only part of the story. Like the reason there's so much XSS is that it's everywhere to begin with, but also to become a web security person, the barrier to entry is quite low. Um, compared to some of the more, you know, you talk about like chipsets in vehicles or whatever else, like the actual access to become someone who's skilled in that domain, there's quite a, quite a high bar. So that means there's less of those people around, but we can actually get to them and we bring them in uh, on a pretty regular basis. So bounties, of course, don't replace the need for security. So how are conversations going with organizations on how to balance bug bounty programs and pen testing services? Yeah, um, so balancing bug bounties and pen testing services, it's an interesting way to frame that question because I think we're at a point where the market doesn't really know what either of those terms mean anymore. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, so how, do you, how are you educating people on the differences? Yeah, sure. So bug bounties, uh, in, in the way that we use it, uh, really specifically talks to this idea of going out to the open internet, um, not necessarily straight away, but eventually, um, offering an incentive and doing you know, the thing that I think the market popularly has in its mind when you say the word bug bounty. Um, where there's been a challenge, I think, is that <clears throat> that core concept or that term has been applied to crowdsource security as a general thing. Um, and that's when the definition starts to break down. Because if you're talking about you know, trusted individuals that are compensated for, for results, but also paid for tasks that they complete or the hours that they work, all working as this kind of assembled super generalist in, in an engagement, um, you're starting to get a fair way from bug bounty at that point. So there, there could be some nuance that gets lost. I think the same thing goes for pen testing. You know, pen testing 
when I started getting into it, it was really almost singularly focused on adversarial simulation. So you've got you know, a, a drop-off point, you've got a target, and your goal is to get from point A to point B and then tell the story of how you did it. Um, <clears throat> my theory on, on when it really started to change dramatically <clears throat> was when the, uh, the PCI Council released a, a definition uh, as a part of their special interest group in 2006 distinguishing pen testing from vulnerability scanning because they're both requirements under PCI DSS right. but there was confusion okay. between what's what. Um, and the way they defined it was that a, a pen test was basically an extension of a vuln scan. You just had manual ver verification of exploitability of the findings at which point the market kind of looked around and thought oh we can probably do that um, and this whole area of like human powered volume assessment or, or enumeration as opposed to true adversarial s simulation became what the market now I think most commonly refers to as pen test okay yeah so words are hard is, is the TLDR <laughs> <laughs> but I, I you know I think um, in, in terms of how we think of it you know, there's, there's sections of the pen test market that I frankly started the business to, to basically get rid of. Um, people that are out there over-representing the value of what they do, you know, getting paid really well for it, but not necessarily delivering a risk benefit to the customer, but then being able to get away with that and do it again. Like part of what I wanted to do with Bug Crowd and this whole model in the industry, frankly, is to call that into question and to bring some accountability to it whilst bringing in a, a superior replacement. When you start talking about things that the crowd are less suited to, that's where partnerships um, between you know us as a crowdsourced security testing platform and people that can do that type of work that the crowd's not as able to do from like a logistics standpoint or a skills availability standpoint. There's all sorts of different reasons why you might want a consultant and not necessarily a group. Um, at that point, that's when we can actually work together uh, and have one power the other and make the other better. So a big part of this conversation is the cybersecurity skill gap. Yeah. How do you see that closing? Yeah, I mean, I think, and this sort of goes back to the um, the question around you know pen testing and sort of the origin story of what we're doing. <clears throat> what I saw uh, back in 2012 when people were looking at Facebook and Google is was partly a product of the fact that it's so even then was so strained um, that they were prepared to reboot how they thought around how to access talent. So it's not just, oh, this is a cool gimmick or, you know, we're going to look great with our, you know, press article around launching the bug bounty program or whatever. Those things are also true, but it's more that, okay, this whole ability to hire folk has become so dire that we need to actually get more creative and a bit more flexible in, in how we access talent. So really my view is that it, it signaled um, the shift, a shift in the nature of work. Like I think the whole idea of services as a platform and then crowdsourcing as a, as a part of service delivery, that's going to touch basically every industry over the next you know, 20 or 30 years. To me, what I saw in 2012 is that security was next, partly brought about by what you were just talking about, this just incredible shortage of good talent to go around to help with defense. So tell us about Bug Crowd University. Bug Crowd University <clears throat> is essentially, it's, um, it's a, a set of training modules and, and things that we take researchers through, like the idea is that um, everyone starts this journey or engages in, in crowdsourcing on the supply side at a different level. Like you've got people that come in that are phenomenal, you've got people that come in brand new, um, full of enthusiasm with some of the skills, but they need 
curation and training. And like ultimately, everyone wants to improve their skills over time because that increases their value, not just working in bug bounty programs, but also as it relates to their career. Um, so the idea uh, behind Bug Crowd University was to, to take the data that we have going through the platform, understand which sets of skills contribute most meaningfully to people improving their value um, as they work on programs, and then to develop content around that uh, to help them get from point A to point B. Um, yeah, so that's that's the essence of it. Um, you know, we're continuing to expand that. Um, we're actually starting to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, engage different people out of the Bug Crowd Ambassador Program. Um, they're basically the mavens that we have within the community that we, you know, that we support and actually lean on to get feedback and, and all of that sort of stuff. A lot of them are also like teachers um, in, in terms of their DNA. So, you know, getting content from those folk, actually using it to promote them as someone who's incredible in that domain, but also make the whole crowd smarter as a byproduct. So how inexperienced can someone be and, and join up and be part of the crowd university and yeah, yeah, for actually sure. grow their skills? <clears throat> for, so for the public programs, there's, there's literally no, there's no barrier to entry. Um, it, it's going out to the open internet and saying, you know, we want to hear from all of you if you've got something meaningful to say. So, so from that perspective, it really becomes a question of, you know, a, a individual's ability to actually create an impact at that point. Like, can they find a bug? You know, is there something unique about how they do things that is going to identify a risk that hasn't been caught yet? Um, and, you know, that's, that's really the starting point. We see people come in that frankly have like no experience in, in security. Um, they might come from a QA background and oftentimes those folk have got quite a bit of learning to do before they can you know hack with the best of them mm -hmm. so so part of what we'll do is actually push them over towards bug crowd university and, and things like level up with the live content that we do so there's a, a quarterly um basically, right? basically yeah virtual security conference where we get people together and it's it's talks um you know those sorts of things like here's where you can get smarter here's how you can increase your own personal value but of course, as a byproduct, it increases their value to us and the customer as well. So there's this sort of, you know, looking for the three-way win wherever we can find it and, and trying to support that. That's kind of a design principle of the company, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, beyond that, you've got, you know, a lot of engineers that come in. That's a really interesting skills cluster, like engineers that have a gaming background, for example. Um, <clears throat> they've learned you know, game mechanics and like the dopamine hit of you know, right. getting the bug done from, from gaming. And they've also learned to a degree like adversarial thinking from playing, you know, Halo or whatever. Um, but they also know how systems are built. So when they come in, it's like, okay, here's how to hack. Here's some of the stuff that's going to tie those different pieces of background experience that you have together um, <clears throat> and actually make it useful to the market. And they end up accelerating really quickly and become, frankly, some of the best people that we have on the platform. So that's another example of how people enter. So in terms of content on the Bug Crowd University platform, are you talking about learning about different vulnerabilities in code bases or is it different attack vectors or a little bit of everything? <clears throat> a little bit of everything. And again, it's, it's data driven. So, so part of what we're doing is actually guiding the content based on what we see um, be most valuable to a researcher's individual contribution on the platform. Yeah, that's going to be around, okay, how, how can you get one step further than just alert one with XSS? Like, how are you chaining a vulnerability to something else? Or, you know, in, in um, areas where there's a clear need but a lack of talent, like automotive hacking, for example. You know, we did a bunch of stuff in, in Level Up, this one just passed, on, 
you know, basically creating an entry point for people to start hacking cars and learning how that whole thing works. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a real variety. Um, you know, there, there is some stuff on there as well, just around straight up hacker etiquette. Because you okay. know, one of the things that comes in, we get asked this a lot, like how can you trust hackers? You know, we've got 150,000 people odd signed up on the platform. You know, how can you trust them to come in and, and do you know, privileged work? And the answer is we don't. Like part of what we need to do is actually assess you know, what level of professionalism and, and trustworthiness each of those people have before we'll invite them in. And for the ones that aren't clearing that bar, let's teach them how to do it. Um, because no one starts life as a pen tester knowing all of the protocols and you right. know, different like right. okay. intricacies of being polite and NDAs and all this other stuff. That's a that's actually a professional learning experience that if you're you know 17 and love hacking, you probably don't have that under your belt yet. So, yeah. So on the workforce front, when you have your you know uh, sect of pen testers that you're putting up on the higher level of your offerings. How do you evaluate the skills and what are you looking for when it comes to bringing people into that talent pool? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So it's, you know, I, I sort of tipped on it before. It's like the, uh, like Voltron, you know, when the, the Transformers like all get together and, and form this like super, you know, robot. Um, constructing a super generalist out of the various skill sets that are required to get a thing done. Because I think uh, a misconception that a lot of people have with security testing in general is that you just need the people that like think evil um, but do good, like they're really creative folk. And they're incredibly important, but they're also probably not going to spend time on you know, all of the other issues that can be chained together to, to create a bigger impact or just straight up look bad. Um, so, you know, those sorts of things in terms of selecting out uh, different people based on the requirement of, of the target and the customer. You know, obviously, uh, an understanding of the context of the technology that's involved, you know, the kinds of impacts that are most relevant. You know, vehicles are very different to payment gateways, which are very different to social media platforms in terms of their threat model and, and the kind of stuff they're most interested in finding. So we look into that as well. And then I think there's this balance between, you know, diligence and and creativity. Like there's people that get a sniff of an issue that they think they can turn into something really big, and then they'll just focus on that. But that that will be at the expense of enumerating all of the other things. So if we know that that's their behaviour, then we'll balance that out with someone that we know will just be methodical and run right across the uh, the target space. So we like to end this on a random question. What is the longest rabbit hole you've been down? Bug crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, outside, outside of bug crowd. So you, you told me not to tie back in with cybersecurity, but that was that was too easy. Um, the longest rabbit hole I've ever been down. Wow, that's a fun one. Um, I mean, I you know the metaphorical rabbit holes. I, I'm pretty much like I'm I'm most motivated to be in a position where I'm building, learning, and teaching all at the same time. And and I think learning is where most of the rabbit hole stuff tends to go down. Like you pull the string on a concept and off you go. Um, you know, I, I got it in my head when I was 12 years old that it would be a good idea to try to harness lightning. And um, that's that's a rabbit hole that I still find myself up at night that, thinking about every now and then. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, with the thunderstorms blowing through National Harbor, and you know, I was making I was making the joke that we angered the cloud, but that um, <laughs> that that brought that rabbit hole to mind. So hopefully that answers the question. Great, Casey, really appreciate you uh, hopping aboard. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. Casey.
Okay, thank you again to Casey. And that is all for this week. We'll talk to you next week. As always, stay curious.